Welcome back to our, our class on paradise, the intermediate state, heaven, the place where we go when we die to await the resurrection of the body and on the last day before we inherit the new heavens and the new earth. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, well, we have spent quite a bit of time in the Gospel of John talking about the essence of life being um, not a thing, but a person, Christ, as our life, and us as having life in Christ. Indeed, our life is Christ. There is no other life. And we transitioned from there to realizing that eternal life, then, is something we are now possessors of, and Though we die, yet shall we live. Whoever lives and believes in Christ shall never die. There's a, there's a sense in which we simply transition from this state of being to the next state of being. But what remains constant is that our life is Christ. Okay. Then we started looking more concretely, transitioning from John's sort of deeper take to Luke and Acts, of course, both written by the physician Luke, looking at the idea of the thief on the cross and Stephen, the first martyr, looking at the idea of dying and going to heaven as primarily being with Jesus. Remember what Jesus says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And then, of course, Stephen says, um, it, we, we talked about how in many ways it's, it has parallels to, to Jesus' own death, but as Stephen is martyred, as he's stoned to death, of course, uh, by, by those who are under the authority of the man who would become St. Paul, as he's being stoned to death, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And remember, heaven's opened, and who does he see? He sees Jesus. And so to die is to be with Jesus. Now, what we're going to see then as we transition from John, from Luke, into Paul, is we're going to see this theme continue, that heaven and the essence of heaven is Jesus. So, you know, if you kind of don't like Jesus, you're kind of not going to like heaven. <laughs> or to put it another way, what, what this does for us is rearranges our mental furniture just a little bit so that we're not really envisioning some sort of paradisical place where Jesus just happens to be there somewhere. The essence of heaven, the essence of paradise, is to be with Jesus. What a blessed time of the church here. We've, today is Advent 1, the first Sunday in Advent. We take a full month, and really longer than that as we tack on the Christmas season, but in terms of Advent, a full four weeks to meditate on the Incarnation. What it means for that one person, Christ, to be true God and true man. And there's just so much here to contemplate on and to think on. You know, one of the thoughts that struck me 
in terms of, of dying and being with the Lord, being with Jesus. Insofar as he's true man, he's comprehensible. He's, he's like us. He is, in fact, as the scriptures say, our brother. And so there's a sense in which, on account of his being true man, he's comprehensible, relatable, tangible. You know, I, I mean, it, the fullness of what it means to be human. So we're going to see human emotion. We're going to have, we're going to have Christ as someone we couldn't, can grasp hold of. Like Thomas, we could put our finger in his side and, and in his wounds that he purchased us. We can wrap our arms around him in embrace. We can laugh with him. Um, insofar as he is true man, which is entirely um, the case, he is graspable, comprehensible. And yet in this one person, he is also true God. Incomprehensible, ungraspable, utterly transcendent, utterly different, utterly... And so you've got this wonderful kind of paradox and mystery in the person of Jesus himself. When we consider the beatific vision, we consider seeing our Lord. He is one who is in utter and complete glory. You know, the scripture's revelation depicts him um, eyes as, as fire and white hair and flowing robe and completely transcendent and majestic. And yet in other places we see him still bearing the wounds of his crucifixion. We see him still willing to grasp and be grasped by the sinner. Um, we see him um, carrying on a kind of transcendence and imminence, glory and humility, divinity and humanity, all in one. This, um, this glorious mystery to have Christ as the center of heaven, to have the beatific vision as the essence of life. Um, this is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. Okay, so before we move on, um, and by the way, we're going to go to Philippians chapter 1, so if you'd like to kind of move along there. But before we do formally, trans, uh, formally transition over to Philippians 1, are there any questions, comments, thoughts you've had um, loitering from last week or that just popped into your mind today? All right, let's get into Philippians chapter 1. Traditionally thought of to be one of the epistles that Paul wrote in um, prison. We can't be absolutely sure of that, but that's kind of the traditional view, <clears throat> and it makes some sense. Written approximately um, 60. Paul is martyred in 68. So he's already at that phase where he's kind of contemplating his, his end and the end of his earthly ministry, so to speak. So Philippians chapter 1, and um, let's begin at, looks like it's the latter half of verse 18. You'll see if you're in your Lutheran study Bible, the heading to live is Christ. And that's where we are. Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, very interesting, very interesting for our understanding of 
the Trinity for our understanding of our Christology. And also, a controversial part of the creed. I know last, last week we got into a controversial part of the creed, incidentally, talking about the descent into hell. Um, but now we have the filioque, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's um, Filioque is and the Son. It's that phrase in, in Latin that was added into the creed by the West. The East objects to that, at first more on political grounds, and then they sort of found a theological excuse for those political grounds. But some dispute of the procession of the Spirit. Does he proceed from the Father only or from the Father and the Son? The East holds to the Father only, the West to the Father and the Son. And this is one of several places that we as Western Christians might point and say, well, it is the capital S Spirit of Jesus Christ. That is to say, it is the capital S Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from Jesus Christ and thus helps St. Paul and us. All right, well, be that as it may. Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. There is a rather profound point that Christ, we seek to have Christ honored in our bodies, whether in life or in death. Faithful to him in life, faithful to him in death. And a kind of ontology latently present as well, that we are one with Christ in life, we are one with Christ in death, and so to have the glory of his life and his death be reflected in our lives and our deaths, this is what it means finally to be conformed into the image of Christ. So even death itself takes on this strange kind of glory in Christ Jesus, that in, in succumbing to death, we are simply being molded in the shape of him who died so that we might also rise with him, you see. So it removes the shame of death. If you don't think there's shame in death, listen to what people say in the face of death in, in their eulogies, um, in their explanations of those who have died. They're constantly trying to cover the shame. So-and-so was such a good person. Never did this, never did that, never did the other thing. And you're like, yeah, okay. Um, so there's this, there's this desperation to cover the shame of death. And this, this, by the way, is also why we want to live long, a long time. Because we're embarrassed. We don't want other people to see us croaked. We don't see other people looking down at the coffin at, at me, just lying there. You know, it's gross. It's embarrassing. You don't want to go early. What would people say? You know? Ah, he didn't live very well. Ah, God didn't like him much. <laughs> There's all kinds of shame involved in death. We just don't talk about it as a culture because we don't talk about death. We hide death away. We leave it to the professionals, right? The professionals do all sorts of weird things, like try to make the dead body look like it's not dead. Hide the cemeteries. Oh, no, they don't exist. Oh, yeah, they do, but just over there. Um, 
we've got a really dysfunctional relationship with death in our culture. <laughs> really dysfunctional. We worship it, worship it, worship it. It's the greatest power. We wear our skull and crossbones, get our tattoos. Yeah, I'm all for death, the power of death. Nothing's more powerful. I'm with it. And then as soon as death comes or we, or we die, it's like, oh, quick, hide it, hide it. Ah, never happened. Death doesn't exist. We have a really dysfunctional relationship with death and a really, and a really dysfunctional relationship with our shame in death. And there's this, there's this glory in the Christian death that the shame is removed because it's, if it's a shame at all, it's a shame that Jesus himself bore, that our King himself bore, that God in human flesh himself bore. So in what sense is it a shame? No shame at all. It's the final, it's the final being conformed into his image. We must die in him so that we might also rise with him. So the shame of death is removed. This, by the way, is why Christians don't spend a lot of time on eulogies. If we do, it's kind of in a reception, and it's just sort of family family and friend remembrances. But it's not really a formal part of the service, because it's not essential. We're not trying to cover any shame here. We're not trying to paint this person out to be something they're not. The righteousness of Christ is sufficient. His blood cleanses them and cleanses us from all our sins. And being conformed into his death is an honor and a glory, because we can stand over that body and say, this is what happened to our Lord Jesus. And this grave into which we lay this person has been sanctified by the death of our Lord Jesus, who himself went into the grave. And he rose from that grave, making the grave the portal and gateway to eternal life. And so as we go into the grave, it's, there's no shame involved. This is what we must do in order to be conformed fully into the image of Christ and rise in our bodies glorified, just as he is risen in his. So again, I don't mean to preach an entire sermon here on a couple lines of scripture, but this is a profound point. And Paul is, is one to always slip in these completely profound points in usually very lengthy run-on sentences. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, look at this. Look at this. Verse 20, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all, or that I will uh, not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. All right, did I see a hand in the back or someone trying to get a word in edgewise? Dare I approach this? I don't know. I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> now that I'm in my 80s and my children have chosen to put me in an assisted living place. My I'm children are already threatening that. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. It's a I'm different living chapter. With, I'm living with 80-year-old people who have, they're, they're catching flies, you know, sitting like this. And... Oh. <laughs> And I am, I'm still anticipating animated conversation, the likes of which I would have with some philosopher, right? I don't know. It's, it's just, and, and the pain that I have in my right side, the surgery's coming somewhere in the latter part of December. Could we do it tomorrow? You know, mm -hmm. I am, I am saying, God in heaven, let me go to your realm. I'm so done with earth. 
Now yeah. that's that's my perspective. I've lived a good life and I'm ready to just and if this is all inappropriate, just kick me, okay? I'm yeah. just <laughs> I'm well, just Well what what are the lyrics to that song? The waiting is yeah. the hardest part. There you are. That's it. Yeah. The waiting is the hardest part. And it's also the hardest part to understand. It's also the hardest part to understand. Our society is so utilitarian. When you've outlived your use, what's the meaning of life? What's the meaning and purpose of me hanging around here forever? And what we need to do is take that utilitarian view of human worth and just flush it down the toilet, just, just all in one shot, um, because it's terrible. It's terrible. Um, the essence of eternal life. Remember what Jesus prays for the Father. This is eternal life, that they may know you and the one whom you sent. You see, that's eternal life. The meaning of life is Christ and the revelation of the Father in Christ. Now, that is given to you as your gift. That's the essence and center of who you are. And that's true whether you're a little baby who can hardly even articulate or cognate any of that all the way to when you're really old and you have the same problems. Okay, it is, it is nonetheless true. It is nonetheless the value, the meaning of life in all of its various seasons. So, part of what we all have to reckon with as we transition from season to season in our life. You know, I was meditating on this a little bit. First season of life, generally speaking, is you're the child of someone. Next season of life is you become married. Shortly thereafter, in most cases, not in all, you become a parent. And then as you become a parent, um, an interesting thing happens. You, st- you, you kind of go to another phase where this is usually how it works out, or roughly speaking how it works out. About the time your children are leaving the house, who then needs your help? Your parents. You finish that season and phase of life, and then what? You're the one that needs the help. <laughs> I mean, I may be rushing things a little bit, um, but these are some general seasons and patterns. Now, the anchor in all of these seasons and patterns of our life is to realize that Christ is the one that gives us meaning, purpose, and value. To simply wait. Waiting is the hardest part. To simply endure. To simply exist within that season, confessing your sins, receiving His forgiveness, praying to Him. There's, there's, not, there's nothing deeper than that. That is what it means to be a human being. That is what it means to be a Christian. That is what it means to have a foretaste of the beatific vision, which, by the way, is just another season and mode of that very thing. Our life is Christ. Eternal life is to know Him and the Father, to receive that revelation. So then then part of what we do in each of these seasons in our lives is we use the Bible to help flesh out what those patterns are, what those callings and purposes are. You know, when we're children, the calling and purpose chiefly is to honor father and mother. Then as husband and wife, it, it changes shape and form. When we ourselves become parents, it changes shape and form once again as we care for and nurture, as we get to play guardian angel to some other little souls on their way to the fullness of the Christian life in the beatific vision. 
And um, then as we transition from that to caring for our parents, there's a sense in which we get to return the favor and prepare ourselves. We see them being conformed into the death of Christ, and we ready ourselves for that next phase of our season. And, you know, again, you don't want to start preparing in the middle of anything. You want to already be prepared, ideally, ahead of time. So you're looking to that next phase and that next season. You're learning how it is that, that you are conformed into the image of Christ and what the shape and contours of that season, that vocation and calling are. And then as you yourself transition into the one who needs to be cared for once again, you're ready for it. You're ready for the humility you're ready to commend yourself into the hands of Jesus. You're ready to endure whatever it is he would have you endure, and you find meaning and purpose now in whatever whatever the Lord has of you. There's a sense in which uh, T.S. Eliot's got this great line, widely applicable, to return to the beginning again, but know it for the first time. And that's a little bit what old age is like. It's to return back to childhood, to full dependence upon another, but to know it for the first time and to understand its shape and mode that all of life and all of the quote-unquote independence we had or thought we had is all illusory. From the time we were children, where it was most evident, to the time we're on our deathbed, where it is again most evident, we realize that the entirety of our lives was dependent upon Him, was in His hands, could have been ended during any season, and thus was sustained during every season. That again, He might conform us in our own unique and personal ways into the image of His beloved Son, which has been the project from the start. Let us make man in our image. When Adam and Eve were thus created in his image, it's a little bit analogous to this. And of course, we have the fall in there that adds a wrinkle too, but it's a little bit analogous to this. You know, when, when a father and, and mother have children, and they're little babies in the womb or maybe in their arms, are they fully human? Of course they are. I, what idiocy for the world to deny this. Of course they're fully human. But have they reached the fullness of what it means to be a human? No. Part of what we do is grow our children, raise our children, um, you know, protect them from things they're not ready for, help them with those transitory, with the transitions, I mean, and then, and lead them into the fullness of what it means to be a human being. Well, there's an analogy in this. Adam and Eve, um, they certainly weren't infants. They certainly weren't little children. Uh, and yet, spiritually, they were precisely this. And spiritually, so are we. We are man made in God's image, and yet we have not yet reached the fullness, the full maturity, and the full stature and measure of Christ. Paul spells this out for us in Ephesians, if you're looking for a proof text. But the point is that what we experience here in this life is all with a meaning, purpose, and intent. And maybe the most difficult and yet most relieving reflection on this is to see his hand most evident in the afflictions and crosses he lays upon us. 
glorious line from Article 11 on election and the formula of Concord, and to paraphrase, before the foundation of the world, before anything was made, let alone you, God already knew you, planned to redeem you in Christ Jesus, planned to send forth his Holy Spirit and baptize you, planned to sustain you in the faith, planned to nourish you in the body and blood of his Son, planned to grow you and mature you into the image of Christ, and even so far as to plan what afflictions and crosses he would burden you with, so that as a potter with the clay, he might form you in your own unique glory and beauty after the image of his Son, and this for all eternity. So to sort of shift the analogy a little bit, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, but that's just the start. In fact, to shift the analogy a little bit, and this again is very scriptural, comes right from Jesus, comes right from Paul. This whole life is, frankly, in utero. We are fetuses relative to what we shall be. Right now in the dark womb of this world, we are being fearfully and wonderfully made, shaped and formed by the hand of the Creator, by good and bad, by blessing and affliction. And what we shall be has not yet been seen. But already we can start to trace the shapes and patterns in one another and the glory that shall be. This is, I mean, this is why there's the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> because without the forgiveness of sins, we wouldn't have any of this. But then let's also not just stop with the forgiveness of sins and say, well, that's the gospel, that's that. Just put a band-aid on that thing. Um, no. The forgiveness of sins is precisely the foundation upon which all of this new creation is being built. That's why the forgiveness of sins is always the center but it's not the telos. The telos is a new creation. And that means each one of us conformed into the image of Jesus. Let us make man in our image. And that process is ongoing. All right. So that helps us, that helps us understand, um, with, to a fuller extent, what Paul has in mind when he's talking about Christ being honored in his body, whether by life or by death. And then verse 21, we finally get to the verse we've all memorized. Although I have to confess, when I was younger, I thought Paul, there, Paul made a typo. And it should have been the other way around. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why would I think that that's a typo? Well, to live is gain. <laughs> To die is Christ. Isn't that what every young person thinks? Hey, the more I, the more I live, the more I gain, and then when I die, there's Christ. But this is really the sinful nature's reason and perception of life and the way it works. Paul interestingly flips it on its head. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if death is gain, what does he mean by to live is Christ? He means that this whole life is cruciform. This whole life is cruciform. It's cross-shaped. It's Christ-shaped. To put it another way, this life is Good Friday. 
So we make a profound mistake if we look for all the blessings of eternal life and all the blessings of God to be bestowed upon us in this life and this life only. What a mistake that is. Or if we think that's the extent of his blessing, that's all the more he loves me, that's all the more he'll, he will bless me. That's a different kind, but equal mistake. We want to recognize where we are and that we are to live is Christ. We are in the shape and pattern and mode of Christ. And then to die is finally when we gain, to be conformed into the image of Christ in his death, to commit ourselves, our spirits, into the hands of the Father, and thus to gain. And just what's packed into that word gain, we're going to get to as we, as we move along. You know, and that's, that's the point too. I mean, in a sense, I know, I know it's our tendency. I mean, it's certainly my tendency. Um, it should do whatever you can to prevent death. Okay. And I actually think that that impulse is Christian and good because we're called to be good stewards. And yet we can't let that eclipse the profound joy we have that Christ has so put death to death that death is no longer death. Death is gain. Again, to use the language and imagery of the scriptures, he has made death the portal, the gate through which we pass into eternal life. Okay, so while we do everything we can to prevent death because we're good stewards and we've got vocations to fulfill here, to live is Christ. How did Christ live? In service of God and neighbor, that's our calling here. In self-sacrifice for God and neighbor, that's our calling. That's our role here. When we die, it is gain that we receive. So that's those are the two sides of the coin we want to have as Christians. Stewardship of this life. Live and serve as long as God would have us. And then yet, at the same time, not see death as, as some kind of like now, in this way of thinking, not see death as some kind of enemy, but see death as a transition and gain. Now, is there a different way in which we can see death as an enemy? Yes, of course, the Bible speaks that way, but that's really a different theological thought paradigm. You know, we'd have to go out of this room into the hallway and into another room and open that up, and then we'd see death as our enemy, okay? Um, but here, to die is not an enemy, but gain. All right, so let's check. A, let's take a look at this, and then and then see once more. Um, so, verse twenty-two: If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. See, that's to live as Christ. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. Wait a minute. Now he's kind of modified it, isn't he? For me to live is Christ. And now to die is to depart and be with Christ. So you see, the fullness of his thought is life is Christ, death is Christ. In life we have him, in death we have him. In life we have him cruciform. In death we have him in glorified form. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. All right, so let's extract some points then. To die is gain. Verse 21. To die, that is to depart, is to be with Christ. Verse 23. So, while we have a very, very rich theology here, we can extract a couple of very simple points related to the question of what it, of, of what the intermediate state is. It's gain and it's Christ. Alright, let's stop here. Let's see if you have any thoughts or comments on these words of, of St. Paul. Again, can you imagine having, having this piety if in fact he is writing this in prison? And not the kind of prison where you get um, you know, three square meals and cable TV and exercise facility. This is kind of like, like think of a dungeon. Think of like rats and disease and starvation. Um, yeah, that's where Paul is. And he has his mind set on Christ. All right, any thoughts? Please. Yep. Scary. Um, yeah, I think we all come in our lives at some point where, you know, the rigor of life or the sorrow that faces us in all circumstances, because we all face it. Um, we often would say, well, why is God doing this to me? Why can't I just go? And um, it came to us at one point, and I thought, well, if God gives you life, and, you know, this is a way from mitigating circumstances, if God gives you life, you kind of have to honor that. Mm-hmm. Because for some reason... He either prolongs our life or takes our life. Yeah. And so, yeah, it came to me at one point, I've got to honor that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, who knows how it's going to be used or what for what purpose. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Mm-hmm. That's why I don't think you can look for your purpose. I think God does it, whatever it is. Right, right. Well, yes, this, this idea that... Um, I would just as soon be in heaven with the Lord. Uh, you know, I frankly think it, acts, it, it actually tends to um, come at people much younger than we think. We're so quick to take the tumultuous um, transition of puberty in the early teen years and some of the suicidal ideation is strictly biological. There's also a sense in which awakening as adults, we are realizing that um, it would be far better to go and be with the Lord than to face what's coming. <laughs> and at various times then, throughout our adult life, all the way until the Lord calls us home, we experience those same thoughts. Um, there's nothing unnatural about these thoughts. In fact, while there may be some that comes from the old Adam and we should confess against, there's some that come from the new man. There's a sense in which we all long to be with Jesus and to just have, I mean, even if nothing else, like, you know, I think you get, you get to this point as a Christian too where you just go, What's the common denominator in all the problems of my life? Oh, yeah, me. 
Like that's that's the common denominator. Okay. So when can I be done with me? <laughs> me in this state. Me as my fallen human nature. And then there's this sense of longing and wanting to go home and wanting to no longer be yourself. We are uh, very quick to rush to the sort of practical, pragmatic, utilitarian view of like, well, you're learning, well, you're gaining, well, you're doing something. And I don't mean to undercut any of that. All of that may be true in one way, shape, or form. Other people may be benefiting or whatever. But play the thought experiment of what if not? Does it still have value? Does it still have glory? You know, there's a deeper question lurking here, too. Why does God have any of us here? Why, the second you become a Christian and are baptized, why the water goes over you and you're in heaven? <laughs> Just like, like you walk through a door. The baptismal water goes, you're converted. You're a child of God. You're an heir of eternal life. Why the second you, are you, you know, you're baptized, are you not just translated into heaven? You know, there's, so there's a deeper question here as to why God continues to have his people here. And of course, there's a spiritual warfare component. I sometimes think, again, this borders on the utilitarian view, so I'm ready to dismiss it for something a little better. But um, there's a kind of utility that we often overlooked. What is a saint's existence to the quote-unquote God of this world? To the prince of the powers of darkness who thinks he owns this and owns everything here. What is one single granny or grandpa laying in a hospital bed? A piece of territory that he cannot claim. A complete slap in the face. A spiritual atomic bomb. He can't even go near it. He can't defeat it. And here it is, this little, this little decrepit creature lying in a bed with bed sores, can't even get up to go to the bathroom, can't even keep their thoughts straight, body falling apart, pain, agony. But what's inside? Faith. This is a child of God. This is a son, a daughter of light. And the darkness cannot overcome it. There's a kind of value there that, how could you put a price on that? It's utterly priceless. It's worth more than all the heavens and the earth put together. So we, from time to time, need to pause and think in terms of the deeper reality of what it is that God might be purposing outside of our little egocentric selves, what God might be accomplishing, and the glory thereof that he, the angels and saints, can easily recognize that we often struggle or fail to recognize. And there's a broader lesson there, too, for us, and that is simply that to remember that we are ambassadors here of Christ Jesus in this place. This, this place isn't our home. We're soldiers, St. Paul says. This is foreign territory, enemy territory. What are we here for? I, I, love how, I love how Paul says it in verse 25. I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I mean, what could be a better purpose statement for each one of us as Christians? What is my, what is my role? What is my function? What is my utility here insofar as God gives me the ability to have any? 
How about for the progress and joy in the faith for other people? So there's, there is this, um, There's this thing we need to keep in mind about our existence in this place, too. If God wanted to call us home, if God wanted to make us suddenly sinless, if God wanted to just purge us of the old Adam and bring us into heaven and let that be that, um, he would. But he has us here, and he has us engaged in tasks, and he's imbued that with meaning, no, no less meaning than the meaning and shape of his own son, and, and the very same glory shared, and the very same joy shared. Okay, this gives us a window then into how it is that God can see us through Christ Jesus and not even reckon our sins against us. Because he has us here. Does he, he, and in order to be here, we have to be here in sinful flesh. And in order to have sinful flesh, we have to be tainted with sin. And so there's a sense in which, like, God isn't surprised by our sins, nor is he expecting sinlessness of us. Now, true enough, we want to fight the old Adam that would take all of God's grace as excuse and liberty for sin, and we want to combat that with go and sin no more. Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. We want to combat and war against the flesh within us with those words of God, and yet we don't want to lose sight of the fact that God knows that that's simply what it means to have us here is that we're going to be sinful and fallen. You know, you confess these sins, I confess those. If I weren't confessing these, I would be confessing another set. And same for you. So we ought not take particular embarrassment or shame about whatever it is, the, the shape of the sins that afflict us. But rather we should rest solely in the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all our sins and in the grace of a God who is our Heavenly Father, and who knows, you know, it's like, it's like if there was, if there was treasure stuck in a bucket full of mud, if you're gonna reach in and grab that treasure, what's gonna happen to your hand? It's going to get dirty. You're not gonna avoid it. That is how Christ embodied in us, he the head, we his body, we are his hands in this earth, reaching to grasp the treasure, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And in order to do that, we have to get muddy. The washing of holy baptism, the washing of water and blood that pours from his side, that cleanses us, that removes all filth as we pull out and up into eternal life. And so, we need to under, we need to be fully repentant of our sins, no doubt about it, but we also need to not be neurotic. We need to realize that God sees our lives, um, and sees the sins, um, in a different way than we do. And thus, He does not even reckon them against us. So, let's keep that in mind also as we, as we march through, um, this side of heaven, um, and are conformed into the image of Christ before we receive gain and before we receive Christ in his glory. All right. Sorry for that little digression. I see a hand. Yes, please. You've brought up so many things in my mind. I'll go through them quickly. Um, I've thought we could compare ourselves to tubes of toothpaste 
end, if the toothpaste tube is squeezed, it may feel uncomfortable, but out comes the toothpaste, and that's what we're supposed to do. You give it the toothpaste. Okay. All right. Next is I'll very to, important. I'll, I'll think about that. I'll see if <laughs> okay. I can work that into a sermon. <laughs> I, say, I say now more than I've ever said in my life out loud to people mm, yeah. that I'm not pulling back and editing before I say it. I, can you, I can't wait until I get old. It's probably the same for you because then you can say whatever you want. <laughs> I figure this is one of the few privileges and benefits of that position in life. You can wear whatever sweater you want, whatever expression on your face you want, and you can speak freely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Second, yes. I realized we, you know, we live life forward and understand backward, but the importance of memorizing scripture and repeating scripture and liturgy mm. and so forth is so important at the end. Yes, right. And another thing I've realized is my in my life, I've focused on the heroes of the faith and what they accomplished, never really paying attention to how they died. Mm. And with it, and that's part of their life. Mm, mm. Uh, and Isn't it wonderful where you have the glorious cloud of witnesses in Hebrews and everybody thinks all, and then what's the recurrent line throughout that entire section? It's devastating to the American theology of glory. These died having not received the promises. And then he just repeats it over and over. These died having not received the promise. These died have, in other words, in other words, um, they died in faith. But they died in longing for that which has not yet been given, that which has not been made manifest. Which also means that the, all the promises to the Old Testament patriarchs and saints in that list and then thoroughgoing as well are yet to be fulfilled and will only be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. That has to be true if they died having not received the promises. The promised land of which God was speaking the Christ of which God was speaking. It's only halfway, partly received. The glory of that and the fullness of that promise kept is not till the new heavens and the new earth and the dwelling place of God with man in Christ Jesus. So, sorry to interject that thought, but it is right there and and really apropos of this conversation. And I can't read my note here, so I'll think of it later. (laughs) Fair enough. Yes, please. On the other hand, yesterday somebody asked, in, in this site, you understand, where I'm with, I'm finding out a lot of pagan Americans. They don't know the word of God. Somebody, there was reference to the Ten Commandments. And of course it is with ease to say, to recite them from Luther's small catechism. And, and I am with this last comment. Um, realizing the essence of our Lutheran education system. It, it is a full force presentation of God's word within Luther's writings with an unashamed, un, unashamedly, I don't know if I'm saying that word right, but without, without, um, like you're saying back there, without hesitation, I'm just going to say it. 
And I, I have had more opportunity as I'm older. I don't know if it's just that the, the, the flow of age is, like you were hinting at, is um, bringing that on. But I have had more opportunities to present what I learned in the catechism classes. And I'm advocating, I'm an advocate hugely for a... Um, the, the predominance of God's word being presented in our, in our Christian schools yeah. without hesitation and, and uh, let it come forth. And you, you never know where it ends because in your, in your aging process, you get the opportunities yeah, to yeah. present. It's amazing. It's a wonderful thing. And, I'm, and I'm, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. How did you ever learn that? You know, they're going, where is that from? I'm going, you know, it's easy for me to be a judgmental woman. Yeah. Well, how is it that you missed this in your schooling? Oh, you went to a, a public school, you know. I'm, uh, and I used to teach in each, the Lutheran school and in the public school. Oh, yeah. yeah, well, thank you for those comments. Yes, in a sense, the, um, the retirement home is a kind of airport. You know how it says arrivals this way and departures that way? <laughs> Go down the Everybody's getting ready to depart. A little more interested in what we Christians have to say. So it is very fertile ground. Um, yeah. When Jesus said, you know, the, the fields are white for the harvest, he may have been looking at the white heads all sitting there thinking, um, <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I can tease now because my hair is, my hair is multicolored, as the, the woman at the salon tells me. Thank you. All right. Um, any other commentary? Was there one other comment? Yeah, um, you said so much. It's just like blowing probably all of our minds. You know, with well, what I know I've said a lot. <laughs> Apologies for that. It, it, I, when you said um, earlier, uh, we have a dysfunctional relationship with death, and that made me think. Well, that means we'll have a dysfunctional relationship with life. It kind of follows, doesn't mm, yeah, it? Of you course. know. Mm -hmm. So. And which means we'll have dysfunctional families, dysfunctional relationship at work, dysfunctional relationships with, yeah. you know. Yeah. But, uh, further, I was thinking how that reflecting on this is, it just ch changes how we live our lives totally if we're thinking this way. So a pagan is not thinking this way at all. So he's going to have all those different trials and troubles and no help, nowhere to turn. But how about some different twists on theology like um you know the number one selling book in the in the world is the bible i understand the number two selling book in the world is the purpose-driven life so i wonder if you could comment is there is there a lot of difference between the way that we're talking about now and living a life a purpose-driven life mm, yeah you know, I think so. I think yeah. why it's so. This is my uh, this is my suspicion. Why it's so popular? Um, for two reasons. First of all, it gets the question exactly right. The question of our times is: um, we live in a world where, again, this is postmodernity, and everything's relative, and there's no inherent meaning. It's just you create your own meaning and whatever you think. And we're seeing the ridiculous fruits of this, of course. And you know, well, I think I'm a I think I'm a girl. I think I'm you know like whatever. Um, so. So everybody, um, for, for decades and decades has been, has been looking for this question of what is meaning? What purpose and role do I have? And the world's like, create your own. And, you know, we all kind of know that that's baloney. 
Um, so then comes a book that says, you know, your purpose-driven life, and the opening pages talk about the meaning and purpose of your life. It's exactly the right question. Very, very popular for that reason. I actually kind of commend him for, for that. That's great. Um, the answer, unfortunately, is the wrong answer. And this is also why it's popular. Uh, this is what um, Luther and the Lutheran reformers called the opinio legis. That is, the idea that's innate within fallen humanity that I can pick myself up by my own bootstraps. And that's really what that book appeals to. So I think page, I mean, I don't know what the exact page is, but it pretty much goes like this. If you've read it, you'll resonate. Page one, it's not about you. It's all about God. It's all about Jesus. Page two through 487, it's actually all about you. <laughs> so, so, okay, that has a certain resonance with the opinio legis within me. Ah, oh, this is in my power. This is in my control. I can learn this and apply this, and things will get more purpose-driven. Things will get more successful, right? And so that, I think, is the secondary reason why it really kind of lights a fire and resonates with people, the opinio legis. And they just don't realize that it's kind of setting them up for even greater dysfunction with the theology of the cross, the theology of death, the need to ha have a confession of sins, weekly if not daily, um, to have absolution and um, altar and body and blood of Jesus and these things for us that is the heart and center of Christianity. Purpose-driven life kind of goes away from all of that, mitigates away. So I think that those are the two reasons. So now, what would I do? I would keep the question, what is the purpose or meaning of life? And then this is my favorite time of the year to answer this. I, uh, John's Gospel, in the beginning was the, was the Lagos. Yeah, was the word. Well, what word? I mean, here, here you can, like, it's also like, from that root of Lagos is rationality, is meaning. I think, I think part of what John's getting at is that the rationality and meaning, this, this has to do with like really deep theology, kind of like in what sense can we say that God is rational and in what sense can we derive any meaning? His transcendence really mitigates against that. God has to reveal a rationality, his rationality. He has to reveal um, a meaning, his meaning. And then that meaning on account of him being God <laughs> is objective is dominant, is capital M, meaning. Now, there's a sense in which John is rift, rifting, or, excuse me, riffing on this, and that is that it's not just a word. What word? Abstractly. It's meaning. It's sense embodied in flesh. So, what is the meaning of life? Typical Lutheran answer, Jesus. But it's true. It's true in the deepest and most profound sense that if you take, I mean, do this as a thought experiment, not for too long, it's unnerving. Get rid of, get rid of Jesus. Just thought experiment. What's the meaning of my life? It gets pretty empty and pretty shallow and pretty untethered, doesn't it? I don't know, to help my kids out? To help them out for what purpose? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they'll grow up and be scoundrels. I mean, this is really what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. Picture a world without God, without Christ, and you now have a world without meaning. Remember, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and all is 
meaningless. Meaninglessness, meaninglessness, all is meaningless. That's really what he's saying in modern speech. So it's all meaningless unless you have God revealed in Christ who is the meaning, who is the word become flesh, the meaning become flesh. Then in him, everything starts to cohere and take shape and take form. Really, our identities and the identity of our whole lives. And then the meaning of life, very simply, is to be forgiven by Christ and conformed into the image of Christ, to be made new, everything relative to Christ. All right, great question. That's all I can do. The Lord be with you.